today's guest is the most wonderful Will Reason, and he is a trauma and somatics. Let's, I'm not going to say expert, but I'm going to say like practitioner. Practitioner. Right? And I've heard so many amazing things about you, so I'm really excited to dig in. This is not a conversation that I get to have very often, mm -hmm. especially with someone who is as profoundly recommended as you have been by so mm -hmm. many people. So can you tell me why is this the reason people know you? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a journey. So thank you for the introduction. And I'd say I'd echo back to you before I answer your question that I get the same feedback from people in my world about you, mm. similar feedback in what you do and the synergy that they imagine might exist between you and I. So um, it's, it's, it feels good to be here. Um, why am I known for trauma and somatics? I found my way into the field of somatics kind of by accident. Um, although maybe not, right? Is, is anything by accident, mm. right? Which we can get into existential questions as we go on. Um, but I always knew I wanted to work with people and I've been fascinated with culture as long as I can remember. I didn't even know that anthropology was the word for the thing that I was interested in, but I've been researching religion, mysticism, culture, and, and whatnot since I was 15, 16, pretty extensively on my own. I don't have formal education in it, but I basically have a PhD in, in re research around all these, these topics, which led me to working with some teachers, some mentors in, who work in the field of astrology. They work in the field of astrology because they became a little disenfranchised with psychology as a field, but they came to it through psychology. One was a Jungian leaning psychologist. The other one really loved Mil um, Milton Erickson's work. So Ericksonian hypnosis. One of the people that Bandler and Grinder modeled for NLP. Um, so I began working with these two and I saw a model for how I could um, work one-on-one -on -one with people without having to go through formal education for it. I always thought I'd go back to school someday and study psychology or something like that. And I may still, I don't know. I didn't enjoy the educational system here in the United States though. So I began working with these two and they, instead of just focusing on the mind, the thoughts, Michael, it's Linda and Michael Brady, their husband and wife, and they, they still work today in the field of astrology. So I learned their model of astrology and, and Michael would say, what are you feeling? And I'd tell him a thought, a series of thoughts whole bunch of thoughts. I might use a little language to define some emotion, but I wasn't connected with it inside of myself. I thought I was. I thought I was really connected to myself. Mm -mm. I thought I was connected, right? And he'd say, well, where do you feel that in your body? And I'd say, I don't know. I think I feel it here, right? And so that was my the beginning of me becoming aware of my lack of awareness. And it became really obvious to me in those moments where I would feel embarrassed. I feel so much shame. I can't identify this feeling. And I was feeling so much in those moments, but I didn't have words for it. And I couldn't pinpoint it. So that was the beginning of me connecting with more of a body oriented approach. Fast forward to now I'm teaching complex theory and methodology that I'm creating myself around in, in the field of somatics. Most people think of somatics as the field of body-oriented work. The way I define the word soma or somatics is the fullness of our being. So we're, when we look at the constellation of a human being, the body might be the conduit for us to experience our aliveness, yet it doesn't stop there. Right? I have a thought because I, I experience myself in some way. The thought's the last thing to happen. It just kind of emerges and floats on the top of the water, for instance. Or if we use the analogy of a vehicle, the instrument panel is not the thing that it's re referencing. 
right? A turn signal light comes on to indicate that the turn signal's on, but it's not the turn signal, right? So the thoughts give us clues to what's going on inside. So with somatics, we're looking at, we're paying attention to the thoughts, we're paying attention to the emotions, we're paying attention to the sensations, we're paying attention to the movement patterns, the sense of purpose and meaning, spirituality, the whole constellation of a human. We could call it a multidisciplinary approach to supporting human beings. And trauma, I found my way into the field of trauma. My mother's a psychotherapist and who is amazing yeah thank you yeah i agree she is she's devoted her life to understanding the complexities of trauma early development and an assortment of modalities like she's a true multidisciplinary and like in its truest form like a voracious learner like continuing to learn and it's pretty cool right now she's doing some work with stephen porges who's mm -hmm. the founder of polyvagal theory really really cool stuff Really cool stuff. So she started going through the somatic experiencing training, which is Dr. Peter Levine's model of how to work with stress physiology, essentially, or trauma. And I began learning about trauma, and I realized that trauma is just the word that we're using to describe the phenomena that's been going on as far back as we look across time with humans. The mystics might call it some form of attachment or some form of like, the Peruvian shamans would call it a susto, right? This, this stuck energy, right? The Native Americans might say that we have a fragmenting of the soul. We would leave a part of ourselves in the difficult moments behind, right? We're stuck, frozen in those moments. And with the latest research in trauma physiology and understanding the nervous system, I'm starting to see a thread that connects to everything that I've learned um, across time, we're still bringing our awareness back to this thing that's happening inside of us on a quest to become more connected to our aliveness, maybe more present in the moment. And so it's like I stepped through this doorway into something and there's no going back. Right? My eyes have been opened to a felt sense of living, a connection to aliveness that I heard stories about in books, you know, or I read these mystics journeys and I'm like, oh, I want to have that. And I thought I needed to go somewhere to get it. And all I needed to do was remove the barriers and I'm already here. There's a quote that, um, that I like to share. It's Anthony DeMello quoting, I think, a Sufi. And it goes like this. And this is my philosophy for life. And it's, it's where it's, I begin the training program, Trauma and Somatics, that I run with this quote. And it's, when the eye is unobstructed, the result is sight. When the ear is unobstructed, the result is hearing. When the nose is unobstructed, the result is smell. When the mouth is unobstructed, the result is taste. When the mind is unobstructed, the result is wisdom. And when the heart is unobstructed, the result is love. And, and then I add, life, really experiencing what Joseph Campbell references as the rapture of being alive, experiencing ourselves is not a matter of addition. It's a matter of subtraction. It's a matter of removing the barriers within our awareness so that we can come into contact with reality. We do that through our sensing self, being connected to our sensing, like the, 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 the way that electrical currents move, the way our nervous system communicates, our referencing with our space, neuroception, proprioception, interoception, right? A perception of the inside, a perception of the outside. Where am I in space? All of these things connect us to our aliveness and that aliveness mm -hmm. happens in the present moment. All there ever is, is this present moment, the infinite movement, but it's not really moving. It's just our perception that's moving. And if we want to touch infinity, there's nowhere to go except for right here, right? 
Eternal life is this present moment. There's no some point after, right? After is the illusion. And where do we come into contact that, with that through our body? Through our awareness, which I think, you know, as I'm talking about these things, having experienced your work, I, th I think we're, you know, we're in line in a lot of those ways with this awareness piece. Long circular way of answering your question. But I find I found my way to this place of exploring this and continuing to ask the question, how do I come into contact with reality? What is reality? It's subjective. What are the barriers to that reality? And in that, there's a cultivation of what, you, what is emerging, and I'm still really in the infancy of it, but a model for helping others to do this inside themselves. Talk to me about the astronomy side of this. Mm. Where does that fit in and, and what is that model that you found? Mm. So the astrology, um, Linda and Michael use a model called karmic astrology. So we might look at somebody's birth chart and we'd look at their node placement. I mean, it's, it's fairly complicated as astrology is, but we'd say, Where's the soul coming from? What are the energies that we're bringing into this life? The archetypes, the symbols, right? And how, did the, how does that manifest in the human being in front of us? And then where is that particular human being headed? Right, the North Node, the direction and the arc is through the expression of all these different personality traits or characteristics, right? The characters of the Zodiac, for instance. And so, we'd look at a person's chart and we'd say, here's the birth chart. And then we could overlay that with moments and time and say, oh, interesting. Here are some influencers. And and the way that they use this model is as a, a means of beginning to ask questions to help to draw out of a person more awareness of themselves. Um, Linda loved Jung's work with making the unconscious conscious. And she would often say the language of your soul is symbol, right? The language of the unconscious. She believed that Jung was an astrologer. And so dream work, programming dreams. Michael did a lot of hypnotic regression, which I learned how to do. So present life, past life regression. And using this model, supporting individuals to, again, it's their way of coming into contact with reality. What are the symbols that are alive in me right now? If we do a regression, create a visualization, so to speak, you're going to associate based on who you are in this moment. And then there are going to be these symbols and these characters that emerge from within that. That's going to give you clues as to the things that are going on under the surface that maybe you're less aware of. So we kind of draw those out. And then we look to the chart and go, oh, interesting. Here are these other influencers. And they're maybe leading us to ask questions in a different way. I'm under the impression that you have certain guidelines that you've discovered over time mm. that are universal truths that everyone sets as like a way to live a beautiful life on a day-to-day -day basis once they've subtracted lots of things. Mm -hmm. What are those principles or guidelines that you've found mm. um, people can live by to be extremely present in, in those beautiful moments more regularly? Mm. There's a lot of being in the pause. What's here? What happens next? Um, there's also an evaluation that I kind of stay in. I guess maybe that helps to guide me. Um, it, it, how is this supporting me? Is this bringing me joy? Is it supporting my value system? Is it in line with that? And is there some intuition guiding me to do this particular thing? If not, no. How do you help people differentiate between that intuition guiding and thoughts guiding? Mm -hmm. 
Well, there's a sensory component to it, right? Um, where I begin with somebody is the process of getting to know themselves and differentiating like a traumatic imprint, some sort of adaptive response, like distinguishing the difference between those kinds of things and intuition, which is guided from by some other something, right? Some sense of an impulse to move towards something as opposed to an impulse that maybe is coming through a different kind of a filter. So where we begin is coming into contact with those things first. Can I feel myself? What happens when I do? Maybe I can't. How do I know it's intuition? When are the moments when intuition has worked? When are the moments it hasn't? But I knew, I knew that there was something there that I could have listened to, but I didn't, right? And, and how do I differentiate? It's unique to every person, right? So everybody is a little bit different, but there's a process of discovering ourselves that helps us to find like those bumpers, so to speak, for us. It's different for me than it is for you, I'm sure. Although there's probably a similar thing that's happening in my body to like compared if we were to measure our, our bodies, there's probably a similar constellation of nerves that are lighting up, sending signals to different parts of the brain. There's like a sensing that's happening if we were to really do a measurement on those things. I'm imagining something similar would be occurring. Hmm. Can you tell me uh, like a personal story so that people who are listening and watching can kind of trace the steps and visualize along with you of some sort of, because I'm also under the assumption that when you do listen to that internal knowing and you've mm. been able to pay more and more attention to that because you've subtracted maybe a lot of these feelings of wanting to move away from things versus wanting to move towards things, right? Because that's the subtraction, right? Is the things that make you want to move away from things versus wanting to move towards things. Mm. Like some story of you leaned into that intuition or knowing and the completely unpredictable or unexpected magic that occurred because of it. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm still refining this, right? So and and I'd offer ref, like even a refinement to the question that you're asking because the subtraction is any behaviors, any thoughts, any relationships that inhibit either my mission in life or my sense of presence within myself. Um, I whoa, let's let's I we have to dive into that. Okay your mission in life and your sense of presence within yourself. Mm -hmm. How do people in your methodology go about discovering their mission in life or revealing it or accepting it yeah. or what, and just yeah. all the words, all the vocabulary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, what I did last year that brought me like really into contact with this, I was floating in a float tank for 90 minutes, four times a week. And I did that on an ongoing basis for three, almost four months regularly. Now, that helped me to have enough time with myself where the noise of the input from the world was subdued so I could be with myself. Now, I've been doing things like that for years. So when I work with somebody, how do, how do I help them to come into contact with that? There are layers. There are layers of obstructions, we'll say. Right, which is why I love Tony's you know, analogy. And I think it's a Sufi analogy, really. But I love it because it's, what are the barriers to my awareness? I may not know. But I know that there is no clarity. Right? I'm aware that there is a lack of clarity. I want to have a better sense of direction and purpose, but I'm just, I don't know. There needs to be enough space that that can emerge from within. So it's almost um, more of a Buddhist or a, an Eastern philosophy around this where I want to remove effort from the equation. I want to create space for my organism to do what it can automatically do, right? What I know about the model that you're, that you're using is like the overlap between what I do and what you do, I think, is this do as little as possible in the beginning get rid of the noise and the barriers right? so that the body, 
the individual, the personality, can do what it innately knows how to do. Right? So there is this sense of direction that will emerge naturally. We got to have the space for it. So I set about getting into that like, process of evaluation with another human being. Now, I'm not sitting down with a piece of paper and going through their life and going, let's do an assessment process of all your life. <laughs> we get into conversation. We get into exploration. Emotions invariably show up. We learn how to be with those things, right? Learning to be with my aliveness. I want to experience life. That means the full spectrum of being alive means I experience my emotions, right? So the more I do that, the more I'm with myself, the less I'm doing other things, right? The less I'm getting in the way. And what I notice is most people fight that process within themselves. Mm -hmm. right? Why do you think? I think it's our conditioning. I, and I believe that, um, I believe that trauma, the living memory of the past, is the root of all suffering. Not pain, but suffering. And I believe it is the cause of all of humanity's problems. And I believe it has been for so long that that is, it's embedded in our process of domestication and I believe that that is what innately lives now inside of us it's passed on from from generation to generation encoded in our DNA right we have reflexes that are built around these specific things and so why is it difficult because we know no other way and I think that's because somebody maybe somebody hasn't asked that question how do we interrupt this how do we get ahead of it how do we stop it before it begins it's a part of religion. It's a part of every culture in a different way. It's a part of politics. It's a part of family dynamics. And it's a part of the way the organism develops now. So if I'm watching or listening this, and I want to recognize when something comes up that I have an opportunity to subtract, mm -hmm. how do I know? Mm. Well, we begin... Noticing ourselves before something comes up. It, it, well, it's kind of a both, right? Can I come into contact with myself? So for instance, for the listeners and for you and I, can we pause and bring our awareness inside of our bodies? And when we do, what happens? Right? I'm aware of my heartbeat. I'm aware of a softness around my eyelids. I'm aware of the point where my hand makes contact with the desk, where my sit bones are making contact with the chair. I can feel pressure. I can feel a tightness in my abdomen. I can feel a softness in my pecs. I feel a tightness or like a cold feeling on the balls of my feet. And as I stay with these things, they change. My awareness changes with them. So part one of the equation is, can I be connected with myself? And on the inside, can I be connected with the emotions that are present right now? I'm aware of joy. I'm aware of excitement. I'm aware of anxiety. I'm aware of some sadness. I'm aware of lots of different things that are present inside of my body right now. Can I notice them without making a story about it? Attaching meaning to it. So part one, again, is this awareness of, of ourselves. And I will return to this place with people when I'm working with them again and again and again. So that when something happens and it comes up, I'm now practiced being with myself so I can be with the thing. Usually when there's a trigger... We call it a trigger because it's triggering a memory. It, it triggers the body to relive some sort of sensory memory, emotional memory, psychological memory, right? And then a cascade happens, as you very well know, I'm sure. And so in those moments, 
can I differentiate what's happening inside of me from right now? Right? And when there's trauma, no, I cannot. What I'm experiencing is right now. Because there's no time date stamp attached to it. Right? The difference between a memory encoded in the hippocampus or a memory encoded through the amygdala. Oversimplification of brain science, of course. Right? So over time, I can begin to bring distinction between I'm flooded with an emotion right now. I'm overwhelmed in this present moment. And I'm aware that the situation is different than the feeling happening in my body. Now I'm, so, I'm able to distinguish those two things. Mm. I have a, a very recent story that I can share that I think will, if people are having trouble understanding this mm -hmm. very concrete example, I uh, was meeting up with a woman last week, right, mm -hmm. on a Monday. Mm -hmm. And I've known her for a very long time, but stayed out of touch. And I was going to meet her just like one-on-one -on -one little like picnic situation, right? Mm -hmm. And I had this really intense separation seven, eight months ago, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And before that last relationship, I would be identifying myself as like an avoidant mm -hmm. attachment style where it was, it was hard to like lean in mm -hmm. to yeah. connection, right? Mm -hmm. And through that relationship, there was three children. I leaned so into connection mm -hmm. and so in, and mm -hmm. really none of those things were showing up on a regular basis anymore, all yeah. of those avoidant things. And then the separation happened, did all this wonderful healing work, magical mm -hmm. journeys. And here I am in this park and I see this woman in the distance and I see her wave at me. Mm -hmm. And the instant that I see her wave at me, my entire body has this reaction, this response. Yeah. And as my body is having that response where the response that what it felt like was turn around, go home, mm -hmm. do not interact with this human. An impulse to flee, mm -hmm. probably a tightness in your muscle tone and probably a heart rate increase, maybe even some heat. Mm. Yeah. And at the exact same time, I burst out laughing. Right. So the so feeling discharge. came in and I burst out laughing because I had the recognition of like, Oh, this is all of that stuff that used to happen yeah. that had gone away for a long time. Hello again. Yeah. Like you're back. That's so interesting. Yeah. And I just sat there for a second and went, just be here and enjoy this moment. Yeah. And then it just went, woof. Yeah. And it is like it went into the grass that I was walking on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a good example. So sometimes it will disperse and sometimes it'll get bigger. Sometimes when we're just learning... And you and I aren't necessarily at the beginning of our journeys, right? And when we're beginning to come into contact with ourselves, sometimes what happens is it begins to amplify. Like, Whoa, this is, I'm feeling a lot. Oh no, oh no. Oh, it's that thing again. Oh, it's that thing again. Oh, how do I make it stop, right? We may start to think to try to stop it. I'm imagining what you might have done that probably interrupted that was you didn't get lost in the thought loop. And you had an awareness of what it was, there could be some amusement or curiosity in a different part of the brain when that happens. There was laughter. So the energy was able to dissipate. Right? We call that some discharge of the energy. And your system was able to regulate itself. Right? It reorganized. And sometimes when we have things that are less resolved, we come into contact with a situation and we're flooded with emotion. Most of us, our impulse is to try to think our way through it, right? Think, figure it out so that the emotion goes away. Suppress the emotion by clamping down, tightening our body, constriction patterns, or get lost in it. Continue thinking the thoughts that make the emotion continue to, to just cycle inside of us. And the trick is to notice that it's happening, let go, allow it to happen, and then allow our bodies to find their way back to this point of homeostasis. And it's nuanced. But then the tears come. We don't make pictures in our minds to make the tears bigger. We don't get lost in storytelling about the emotion. We bring our awareness to our bodies 
Notice what it feels like to have the tears, if tears are present, right? And then they pass. And then we notice the passing. And then we're here. And really what we're doing is we're staying present with the thing. Like you described, you're staying present with the thing. Here I am in this moment. And then, oh, I'm back here fully. I can go re-engage with this. Mm. So I know there's there's definitely multiple genres mm. of education and processes, yeah. right? So the ones that I've defined in the past is there's conscious things that are coming up. Mm-hmm. There's subconscious things that are very present. Yeah. There's somatic things mm-hmm. that are present in your body, in your breath, mm-hmm. right? And potentially in the tone of voice or the sound that you're producing, right? Yeah. And then there's energetic things that are present. Yeah. And whatever, if someone's listening or watching this right now and any of those words stick out, conscious, subconscious, somatic, or energetic, mm-hmm. there might be a different starting point yeah. or different education point to get into. It may not be the beginning, but it may be part of the journey. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend if you could recommend um, either a book or uh, mm-hmm. a specific person to follow or somewhere to to go deeper into the education of one or all of those? Yeah. Um, I think it depends on where you are on your journey. Um, so as a base level, what would you recommend? Yeah, an entry point. Um, that's a good question, Skip. Well, I don't have an entry level um, suggestion, but the thing that keeps coming to my mind, which I'll share is um, these thinking, feeling, sensing, being essentially is what we're talking about, right? Thinking, feeling, sensing, being. And that's how I, I, I break things down for my own work. Gurdjieff's work influenced tons of people. Alan Watts, Joseph Campbell, Stanley Kellerman, Ida Rolf, um, Moshe Feldenkrais, like a lot of different interesting people that have then also influenced body work, psychotherapy, philosophy, and so on. Gurdjieff is very complex in his delivery of these things, but it's probably the most comprehensive example or explanation of how this stuff shows up, both in our bodies and our minds, and the distinction of all these pieces. There was a book that um, Michael read, and I don't remember what it's called now, but it essentially helped him to create the distinction between the mind and the heart, right? the thinking and the feeling. And I think for those of us that are beginning, oh, so you have to see if I can pull up the name of the book at some point. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. So we have our thinking, but can we get to a point of feeling? Can we acknowledge that we have that gut or that heart brain, right? And identify it and put, put language to it. Like, I'm feeling scared. I'm feeling happy, right? Something that simple is a good entry point. But a book... Yeah, I don't have good beginners books. Hmm. What about people? People that produce content that mm. will lightly touch on some of these subjects and be able to get them a little bit further down the path. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kerwin Ray talks a lot about this stuff in his social content. Matthew Hussey talks about this stuff in his social content. Um, those are probably some good people to follow on social um i don't produce a lot of social content right now but those are the first two that come to my mind which is really just beginning to make contact with ourselves um buddhist philosophers we could follow eckhart tolle's stuff he's good for it's more complex um ram das listen to some of his content alan watts listen Mm. to some of his content yeah Great entry points. Mm-hmm. So earlier you mentioned this concept of subtraction, mm-hmm. right? In nutrition mm-hmm. and even in exercise, the philosophy that I talk about a lot is 
instead of considering, and I love this, Eric Edmides teaches this in Wild Fit with mm. Mind Valley. Instead of thinking about removing the sugary things and the mm-hmm. coffee and like removing all these things that are, you know, less healthy for you, mm-hmm. he's like, focus on at first adding all of the really great stuff. Yeah. Because by naturally adding the great stuff, you'll have less hunger and less desire yeah. for the stuff that's not as great. And don't even worry about that at first. Crowding right? out, I think is what we call that. Crowding out. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. So, how do you recommend? Or do you use that in this work? Um, I did in the beginning. I began focusing my attention and my awareness on the things that mattered. And naturally, the things that didn't began to fall away. Um, and I guess subtraction kind of is that anyway. What we're really talking about here, Skip, is boundaries. So many of us move through the world with either overly rigid boundaries or none at all. We don't necessarily have good models for that culturally. But appropriate boundaries around my time, around my attention, around my relationships, um, around my energy output, those kinds of things or appropriate boundaries around food could look like pointing my attention at, at really focusing on adding in or attending to what's working and allowing what's not working to just drift away. Because where we place our attention, that kind of amplifies um, and this is something that we use in the course, um, the trauma and somatics course that I run, which is what's working. Can we notice, can we orient to that, which is pleasurable? Can we orient to that, which is working, that, which is positive, that, which is, um, expansive or enriching or enlivening in our lives. Because a lot of us naturally so orient to what's not working. Right. And so, yes, to that. Can you give me your like personal life breakdown on this. So mm-hmm. like, what do you orient to that works for you? I orient to enough sleep, proper nutrition, enough time with people that care about me that I care about enough time for introspection and relaxation and enough time for play. And then additionally, that which is most important to me in my life right now, which is the learning and the development of my life's work. Right. So it's it's the immersion of those like within those those different domains. Mm. And it's a little bit different each day. Mm-hmm. But I always make sure there's time for play. Right. What does play look like for you? Play for me could be time with friends. It could be something uh, physical. Keto white chocolate. Keto white chocolate. Man, that stuff is so good. <laughs> um, it could look like time outside. It could look like playing the guitar. I love to play the guitar. Uh, so I'll sit down and... I don't play professionally. I used to run sound professionally, do sound engineering and do production work. Um, But now it looks like I'll grab a bunch of loops from a program, I'll put them into Ableton Live, I'll turn on my guitar and I just create melodies or riffs or sounds or phrases. And that, when I'm in that state, what happens is after I'll have ideas that'll emerge. It's like a meditation of sorts, right? I'm just there. It's all I am. I don't do anything with that stuff. I mean, I, sometimes I, I put it on SoundCloud, but it, like, it's not designed as a song. It's linear. It's just, it just, there's a repetitive loop in the background and I'm just creating sounds, building a soundscape. I may sit down with Adobe Illustrator and just start designing something. I may play with um, like visual design elements. Talk to me about music. Mm. So you were a sound engineer, mm. and now I'm learning that you play with Ableton, mm-hmm. and you make this like a focus of your life. Yeah, it's a piece of my life for sure. Um, music, art, creativity of all kinds. So my mother was a um, was an art teacher when I was a child, and she she taught art at a Waldorf school. I went to a Waldorf school as a child, and so creativity was encouraged painting, um, drawing, clay, like modeling, whatever, any kind of creativity. So it's been a huge theme in my life. And I find it really nurturing. There's also more to it, which is I'm practicing being a beginner, being messy, not knowing the answers, not knowing what I'm doing, not knowing where I'm going or what I'm going to do, and improvising, adjusting, in situations. 
So art or some form of creativity allows us to be in this playful childlike state where it is messy. And it helps me to stay tethered to this life's not so serious. There, you know, messiness is important. Mm. Falling again and again and again teaches us how to walk or how to sit, stand, right? Sit, all of that. Right? I love that you just said that. So if we take that and we go back to that moment in anyone's life where she waves in the distance and you have that response mm-hmm. or someone says something and you have that response or a camera shuts off yeah. and you have a response, right? right? What would be, if you're comfortable giving tips, mm-hmm. like what would be the in the moment things that someone could just do mm-hmm. if they're feeling the response and they've become aware of it? Mm-hmm. What what's the What are the strategies? Yeah, a good thing to do is to ask yourself, so what am I noticing right now? If we're not so consumed with the experience, right? If I have a moment of clarity in the midst of it and say, well, what am I feeling? I'm feeling tightness in my chest. My heart's beating faster. My neck is warm. My face is warm. I'm afraid. I'm feeling scared. My heart's beating faster. My hands are tingly, right? What I'm doing is I'm connecting to the bodily components of what's going on, right? And as I'm connecting to those things, something's going to happen. My body's going to do what it knows how to do. If I get out of the way and I don't try to direct my body and I don't try to control the situation, there'll be a movement of that energy. It'll disperse in some way or you know, reintegrate into me, right? The, and what I like to say is it's almost like a little wave. Like there's a cresting of the experience. So it'll crest, it'll get intense, and it'll hit a peak intensity, and then our body goes, I know what to do. And it downregulates. So it'll be a sigh, laughter, some tears, mm. a shiver, mm. any number of things. I'll, I very rarely do this on an, on an episode, but I'm going to... I'm going to explain a little bit about why the dojo Mm. exists in this way and where the synergy there's, Mm. I mean, many, many that I'm realizing. Mm -hmm. So in the, the thrive dojo work, right. My philosophy around why Mm -hmm. for almost my entire adult life, because I've been doing this work my entire adult life, because I had that back injury, I've been able to move through those situations pretty easily. My body's been able to move through those situations Because what it's doing is it's, as we're going around the whole body and removing it in a very particular way, Mm. we are practicing the energetic movement at low intensities and high intensities through each section of the body so that energy can move more freely. So you get this huge burst of energy through a particular area or in your field, right? Mm -hmm. And then what happens is people have lots of hiccups, lots of mildew and gunk in the pipes right in the nervous system in the nerves the meridians right Mm -hmm. and if you don't have the practice of moving energy through whether it's through thought and talking Mm -hmm. with conscious right Mm -hmm. subconscious Mm -hmm. if you don't have that well-oiled machine happening and the somatic work which is a lot of the dojo but other things and then the energy Mm -hmm. side of it right yeah and so as people practice that work on a daily basis there's like the flow that's happening Mm -hmm. And there's also more that I, I'm not going to get into yet. And that's also the reason, there's many reasons. There's physiological reasons, which is where this all came from. The, yeah. the dojo work came from physiology. Yeah. And I've just begun to recognize how it's it's no different than the energetic side of things. Yeah. When you allow people to consciously, in a safe space, move to 100% intensity mm-hmm. and really allow stress and strain to happen yeah. in a safe place, yeah. and you've built up to it, and then allow them to, as a gradient, control that intensity down mm-hmm. again and again and again in this repetitive way. Mm-hmm. When the body goes 100% intensity, you're like, oh, I'm very comfortable with this. Yeah, it's familiar. Mm-hmm. I know how to be here. And I know how to move that gradient That's down. Right. That's right. So it, it's like, not yeah. saying it's the solution. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a wonderful practice. It's resilience training. Mm. Right? Health is measured by a, a, a body's ability to go from stress to relaxation without 
friction or fragmentation, right? And that's resilience. Resilience is I can go from sleeping to running back to sleeping with very little interruption in the process. 99.9% of us cannot do that. Mm. Animals can. Sleeping to running to sleeping. Mm. Look at a dog. Look at a cat. Loud noise. Jump. Run. Pause. Lay down. Rest. And my very 3D translation of that is I love to be able to sleep and then get up and turn on a song and twerk for a little bit yep. and then go back to bed. Exactly. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. So is that what this is all leading towards? Like, let's say someone goes through the entire everything that you've talked about today, mm -hmm. right? What's the, what's like the outcome? Mm. It's ongoing and evolving. <laughs> Um, I'm careful with when I, when I talk about these things, because an expectation gets in the way of us being with the experience. Right. Mm. So, um, can you clarify that line? Mm -hmm. The expectation gets in the way of the experience. Yeah. If I expect that I'm going to arrive at a certain point, what I'm doing is clouded by my assumption that I need to get somewhere. And I'm not really with where I am, what's happening, and exploring the moment in my experience of myself. Right? So I'm in an expectation. I'm in an, there's an assumption about where I need to be. And then I, I'm also assuming that there's a finish line. Hmm. So I can bring it back to that, <laughs> that same analogy. Uh -huh. You could say your outcome, like I've, I've seen this happen with people where the outcome is to not experience triggers and not experience mm. the thing intensify right mm -hmm. the real beauty that i've noticed and what i'm so deeply grateful for is that i experienced that in that moment and instantly started laughing yeah where i'm like oh so potentially this will always happen maybe just it doesn't have to affect yeah the people around me Right. It can just be an experience that I have and then I can enjoy it because it, it was enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Like I felt it and was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating. Hi. Mm -hmm. You know. Well, if I were to have to define an end goal or an outcome, I'm moving through life. A trigger may happen. Something stressful occurs. I experience the stress. I experience the trigger. I feel my emotions. I feel afraid. I feel sad. I feel happy. I feel joy. And the moment passes and I feel what's next. Mm. I don't get stuck in these moments so much anymore. There's a fluidity to the movement of my experience within myself, right? I'm joyful. I'm sad. I'm kind of apathetic. I'm tired. I'm alert. I'm playful. I'm angry, right? I want full access to the full range of my aliveness, which means that I'm experiencing those moments. I'm not not getting triggered per se. I can be with my triggers. I can be with my emotions, right? And, and I want to make a distinction here between a trigger and an emotion. It triggers the living memory being triggered from something from the past, and we can't distinguish the two. But there are moments that are emotional. We are emotional creatures. Like, and I want to experience my emotions. I don't want to move through life like a robot. That's not being a human. We're under the illusion, many of us, that we need to get rid of our emotional responses to things. No. I want to feel my emotions because that's how I'm, I'm alive. The limbic system exists in our body unless we are dissociated from it. But in order for me to not experience my emotional self, I have to cut off my awareness of myself. Hmm. Right? I'm not really alive. I want that aliveness here with me. So there's a sad moment and I cry. Mm. I'm not ashamed of that, those tears. I'm not stopping them. I'm not hiding them. I'm with them. I'm really with myself and I can be with you. Right? I'm here with you. And we're alive together. And that's different than me withholding my awareness of my aliveness. Right? Or cutting or fragmenting myself from it. It's always there. It's just, am I cut off from it? Am I dissociated? Is my awareness somewhere else? Mm. Can you tell me about the saddest moment in your life in the last year? 
Mm. Yeah, the saddest moment. Like the deepest shame and guilt mm. and grief, apathy. Well, I can tell you about two different contexts that brought up um, like large or big emotional experiences inside of my body. One last year, around this time actually, almost a year ago, it'll be a year ago next week, um, my ex-partner and I were separating. And there was a moment where we knew, we really knew, and we made the decision that we were going to change the nature of our relationship from um, romantic partners to business partners. And continue to run our business, and we were no longer going to be romantic partners, so that meant that our future was changing. And so when this happened, I was sad, I was scared, I didn't want to feel my sadness or my fear. My attachment system was activated, like all these memories of like, it's not going to be okay, something's going to happen, I'm like, I'm going to be alone, which, you know, it's more about being lonely. And it's not safe. And I attempted to avoid those. I attempted to not feel them, to cut myself off from them. I'm going to be okay. It's, it's totally okay. Things are good. We're making the right decision. Only I didn't know I was doing that to myself. I was not really aware of how deeply I was feeling moved emotionally by it. I went and I worked out. I went to sleep. I woke up the next day. And I couldn't stand up straight. Part of my back the muscles contracted and my body, my pelvis was a little bit rotated and, my, and I was stuck in this position. I felt stuck. My body was reflecting that stuckness. Mm -hmm. I called the Feldenkrais practitioner that I was working with. He came over, did some work with me. I couldn't drive. I couldn't sit up. I couldn't lay down. Like, it just wasn't comfortable. No matter where I was, I was in an excruciating pain and there were these contractions. So he did some Feldenkrais work with me, with my body, and got to this point where my body was going into these involuntary muscle contractions. Um, attempting to let go of the, of the tightness led to these contractions, and um, that led to a whole flooding of experience. I was aware, though. I was kind of chuckling as this is happening. I'm watching my body. I'm like, well, I'm in excruciating pain, and my body's trembling. Here I am in that moment. I know what this is about. I know what it is about. But I couldn't access the tears when he was there. And I knew I needed to. And my ex-partner's name is Ariana. Ariana was gone during the session. She came back and he was kind of like, well, I'm going to go ahead and, and go. But I was on the floor. I couldn't get up. I was on my back with my knees up. And I was like, it's fine. Go ahead. And she was there. And she came over to me. And I said, could you put your hand on my back and hold me? And the moment that she made contact with my body, I was able to access the sadness, the fear. I had someone with me. And she was compassionately with me. And I was able to tremble some more. Not, I didn't make myself do any of these things. I allowed it to happen. The tears flooded. The sobbing happened. And I allowed it to happen. I didn't get in the way. I didn't stop it. I didn't try to make it stop. I didn't try to make the pain go away. I just sat in it. And for a half an hour, my body shivered and trembled and shook. And when that was over, I was able to get up. I wasn't able to fully stand, but I was able to walk. And within three days, I was standing and moving and walking again. And there were a few moments of more tears, but for the most part, in that moment, I was able to process that. And there was this deep fear, and it was more fear than it was sadness, but it was, it was around the, the change that was taking place because we were connected. Um, and that, that changing of the connection was real. 
right? And it triggered all sorts of stuff inside of me around safety, around belonging, shame, am I enough of a man, am I, did I fail? You know, all these thoughts, which were really just my mind attempting to make sense of what I was feeling, the very real nature of the fear and the sadness, the grief, mm. right? And so I turned towards that again and again, and by turning towards it, it didn't live on inside of me. And we run our company together and we're still close and we have a beautiful friendship now that, that occasionally has conflict as, as it does. And then fast forward to the end of last year and I met somebody else. And in the meeting of someone new, all these layers of fear around connection emerged, but they were different this time. It was like a spiral or, or returning to something else, something, but it was something else. And I connected with this part of me. My teenage years were really hard. And I connected with a part of me, the memory, the, 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 the felt sense of me from before those things happened. And there was this grieving of the time where it was hard, like of what could have been during that time and meeting this person helped me to connect with that part of myself and so for weeks I'd be at home and there I'd be like I'd watch a little television or I'd be listening to a, a book or I'd be reading or I'd be going through the world and I'd be hit with a wave of grief and rather than try to think my way through it or turn away from it I, I would pause and I'd let the wave come and I'd let it move through me and I'd turn towards it, so to speak, bring my awareness into it. Is there more? What's here? Can I be with myself? And let the grieving happen. And also connect my awareness, my consciousness to this is about then. It's not about now, although it is real right now. Because back then, I couldn't be with it, but I can now. Mm. That's a, you would say that line one more time? Because back then I couldn't be with it and I can right now. Right, I have the resources, the physical resources, the psychological resources. I have the people in my life, the support. I'm safe right now. I didn't say those words, but I helped myself to identify that I was safe now but I wasn't then, and I couldn't be with it then. So it resurfaces. And when I can be with it, the intensity dwindles, and my capacity to be with it grows. And all I'm doing is expanding my capacity to be with my aliveness, and helping my system to put a time and a date stamp on that sensory memory so that it no longer shows up as if it's still happening right now, right? We're cataloging it, dropping it in the hippocampus. Like that happened when I was such and such date. This is familiar from that one time when, now when it comes up, oh, I'm having a memory. Not this moment is dangerous, right? It's totally different. So the grieving, the sadness, the pain, the longing, Right? Like, oftentimes we meet people, we think that what we're wanting is that person. We project all of our things onto the individual. And for me, it was a practice and an exercise of returning that to myself. Right? Saying, this is not about this person. This person is providing me with the opportunity to feel the things that haven't been felt, that have been alive, living in my body. Right? But now I can be with them. I can be with myself. Wonderful. <laughs> can you tell me about the most joyful experience in the last 12 months? Mm. Hmm. Hmm. 
there have been a number of joyful experiences, and, and most of them are relational experiences um, with friends. And this deepening of connection and the trust in, in that. Um, the feeling close to someone else and feeling safe being close to someone else. Like the real deep closeness. Um, the, that's been some of the most joy I've experienced in the past year. I mean, I could talk about external things, but metrics, all that. It's, it, it's, that's not the thing that brings me the joy. Those things are fun. But it's it's the richness of of aliveness that happens relationally, experientially. Those moments that will live on forever inside of me, being held, holding another, right? Laughing about something silly with a friend. Moving through the world, and 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 feeling that sense of lightness. I'm being more abstract in how I'm describing these things, but it's it's how it it emerges inside of me. Yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. I went to Barton Springs like a couple weeks ago with a really mm-hmm. close friend. Mm-hmm. Barton Springs is a wonderful like natural pool here in Austin, mm-hmm. and we went at like 7 a.m. in the morning. Mm-hmm. It was actually quite cold water at the mm-hmm. time. Um, there's no one there, so the fish have taken over the area, <laughs> nice. right? And there's a couple dogs and Mm -hmm. things like that. Birds are chirping, sunrise, right? Mm -hmm. And we just showed up, a couple towels, got in the water, realized it's like 50 degrees in the morning Mm -hmm. because it was just the beginning of like the heat coming in. So we didn't realize how cold it would be. It was quite fun and exhilarating to kind of like jump in and like he lives in the country, Georgia, Mm -hmm. over by Russia, right? So he was visiting and just so amazing, right? And he's considering moving here. And Mm -hmm. we have a really close friendship over many years and just having that moment. Mm -hmm. So what I hear you saying is like the circumstances like Barton Springs, the cold water, the fish, Mm -hmm. those are not the components, right? It's the feelings. It's the energies of being in that moment. And at the same time, realizing that, yes, this is happening and yes, this is normal for you. And yes, this is going to continue to happen for the rest of your life. And this person is someone trustworthy and so are you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Is that what I hear you saying? Yeah. And this will never happen again. This will end. This is impermanent. It's both. It's the, yeah, I can trust this. I can open. I can be with this moment. I can experience the joy and the aliveness. And I'm not holding on to it. Mm. I'm letting go. I'm in the movement of life. Life is movement, right? And rather than constricting or holding on to it, I'm learning to allow it to move through me um, and trusting that I can experience whatever's coming next. I'm so honored. Mm. I'm so honored to have the ability to do this interview. Hmm. and extract all this out of you so incredible when people fall in love with you in this interview (laughs) where can they go to stalk you where can (laughs) they go to just get so much more of you yeah instagram is where i'm most active these days and it's at will reason r-e-z-i-n i I do have a website um awakensoma.com or willreason.com will get you there too and then the training website is traumaandsomatics.com and so any of those, and we have a, an Instagram account too, where we share content about trauma education and whatnot, nervous system education. The fun thing, Skip, about the work that I'm doing is, and I'm in the process of creating a, a training for practitioners with my mother, which I'm very, 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 very excited about. That's going to be super cool later this year. Um, but the thing that I love about about the intersection of trauma and somatics is that the way I, the way that I define these things, the way that I talk about these things, is philosophical in nature. 
because I think life is philosophical in nature. And the intersection of these two points is aliveness. Trauma inhibits our ability to be in the present moment. It's anything that prevents us from being here. We're not safe enough. Our body's still sending us signals. Like, I can't be here in the present with you. How do I access more presence? Through an awareness of myself. Through an awareness of my thoughts, through an awareness of my emotions, through an awareness of my body. And when I access those things, I connect to a deeper sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, right? Which points me in that direction. And even though we're educating practitioners about trauma, in order to do that, we have to talk about the rest of these things. Well, we don't have to. We choose to talk about the rest of these things, which is really that how do I be a human? How do I connect to my aliveness? And what are the barriers to those things? Mm. The sentence that came into my head when you said that is, how do I enjoy all of the moments? That's right. Regardless of what the feelings are in those moments. That's right. That's it. That is it in a nutshell. I want to experience the full range of human experience. That means I want to have the capacity to be scared and to be happy. Right? Not just the good. That leads to a bland life. It also leads to a life disconnected from ourselves. Thank you so much. Thank this you. is so wonderful. Thank you. Guys.